Good evening. Okay, welcome to the Enid Pratt Free Library. This is the Writers' Live series, and we're so happy to see so many people out this uh, this evening. Um, my name is Teresa Evans, and I work out of the Programs and Publications Department. If you ever get copies of Compass and you see all the author programs, that is us. We do. We bring in lots and lots of authors. So if this is your first time, welcome again, and we hope that this won't be your last time. We are so happy to have Kevin share, who will be with us this evening. But we've asked Ralph Moore to do the introductions um, this evening. So, Ralph, one quick question, one quick comment. Once we do Q&A, we are going to run the mic around to you if you have an answer, because this program is being podcast. Thank you. Good evening. It's okay. That's fine. I wore my one of my dress T-shirts for the occasion. Yeah. You know, some T-shirts are dress T-shirts, and you send them to the dry cleaners to hold them in uh, in place. Uh, Kevin Sherd is a living lesson of redemption. I met him a little over a year ago at the University of Maryland Law School. We were participating in the actress Sonia Sands' Rewired for Change forum. Remember that, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why we never met before then. Everybody knows Kevin. Anyway, as you all are probably already aware, Kevin is a lifelong Baltimorean from the West Side. His father was an alcoholic, and Kevin reminds us in his book the great strain that put on his family's life. At 18 years old, Kevin went down to police headquarters and filled out an application to be a Baltimore City police officer. One wonders what direction his life might have taken at this early age if someone there decided to take the too young Kevin under his or her wing and slowly guided or mentored him into law enforcement rather than just sending him away. Read his book, please, to see how he went from 12th grade high school dropout to drug dealer to inmate and then ultimately ultimately to become co-founder of the Mario Do-Right Foundation. His boyhood friend, Mario Barrett, is a Grammy-nominated rhythm and blues singer, songwriter, and actor. Kevin is president of his Friends Foundation. When I heard the word foundation that afternoon at the Maryland Law School, I couldn't wait until the session was over to talk to Kevin to see if he might be able to make a grant to the summer peace camp I co-founded for inner-city kids. He invited me to meet with him in a few days in his office in the Associated Black Charities Building on Cathedral Street. I did, and while there, Kevin Sherd flipped the script on me. Do young people still say flip the script? (laughs) Sometimes I'm still saying this stuff, and it's gone. How you doing? Dean, good to see you. Long time. Um, Kevin flipped the script on me. Uh, he ended up asking me to consider coming on his board and supporting the foundation's work. 
It was a smooth move. <laughs> In retrospect, I realize flipping the script is what Kevin's life is about. Flipping his script and others. From drug dealer, drug dealer to foundation president is quite a flip. And from executive to author is quite another. His foundation work is about saving the children from their distressed, downward-falling parents. The Jesuit fathers and brothers who taught me in high school spoke oftentimes of the concept of metanoia, a change of heart. Metanoia is the experience of St. Paul, then Saul, on the road to Damascus, of Malcolm on his pilgrimage to Mecca. It was a conversion experience for them. What the Jesuits called metanoia and young folks call flipping the script, Kevin names his conversion experience redemption. Call it what you will. His book's lessons embodied in the life story he tells is fascinating. It's a page turner. His mission now is to tell his story to everyone who listen and help us all do right by the children. It is my honor and privilege to introduce you to you, Mr. Kevin Wright, but as I said earlier, you've likely met this missionary in his travels. If so, I'm sure you'll enjoy meeting him again. Here's Kevin Sherd. Let's hear it for him. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so real quick, I just want to say um, how I met Ralph. <laughs> I'm going to give you the true story. <laughs> I woke up one morning and decided to post something on Facebook. So how many of you guys have a Facebook page? Right? So I woke up one morning and decided to post something on Facebook. About 6 o'clock in the morning. By 8 o'clock, I had a response. The response was rough. <laughs> and I actually posted a picture about a a well-known individual here in Baltimore. So Ralph took the liberty of basically telling me <laughs> that he didn't like this guy, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And so when we met at the University of Maryland uh, 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 Law School, um, we hadn't met in person before. So I, I kept looking at Ralph and saying, wow, I know this guy from somewhere, but I just can't put my finger on it. That was about 8 o'clock in the morning. By 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I realized, that's the Facebook guy. That's the guy. <laughs> but uh, ever since then, we became great friends. Um, and he's been a great supporter of the work I've been doing. Um, and so today, we really just want to read to you some information about this book. It's, it's been getting some great uh, feedback from individuals. Um, it's a book about my life. It wasn't easy writing about. It's never easy writing about yourself. Um, this wasn't a story of a, a Harry Potter story or a, a, a Star Wars story. It was a story about my life growing up here in Baltimore and most of that dealing with pain. And what I decided to do was put my pain down on paper so that other individuals could look at it, read it, examine it, and especially the youth and decide, wow, I don't want to go down that road. Um, Tuesday, I was, uh, was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting with the, the White House staff, the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Um, had a great meeting. Looks like we'll be doing some great work together in the area of uh, substance abuse prevention. That's my pet peeve, and that's something that I really believe in. But prior to that, 
um, I was actually examining my own life and the road that I traveled. And I said, wow, I'm here now meeting with the um, White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, um, actually hoping to, to get a, 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 a clearance to get into the White House for an event in September. But I also grew up here in Baltimore as a drug dealer in West Baltimore, dealing drugs, dealing, dealing uh, poison to individuals uh, suffering from the disease of addiction because addiction is a disease and selling drugs is, illegal drugs is poison. Heroin is poison. There's no benefit to the community uh, selling heroin except your own benefit, which is usually financial benefits. So we're going to read a little bit about the book and um, we're going to have some, a discussion with you guys. And so Myra is going to help me out with that. And she's going to start with a, a, a piece that one of the one of the pieces in the book that she really loves. The doorknob was loose, nearly falling off the old squeaky door of the house. The paint on the window sills was cracking, and the decaying front porch creaked from repairs that remained undone. The address of the house that sat on the corner of this drug dealer's haven was 501 Normandy Avenue. Its close proximity to the illegal activities here in this failing section of Edmondson Village made this the perfect place to test our product. The constant foot traffic by the many visiting drug addicts had taken its toll on this dilapidated enclave. The door was dented from the police battering ram used in the most recent search of the house. This neighborhood shooting gallery had become an unsavory sight. When I walked inside, Uncle Rob was standing in the middle of the living room with both hands on a syringe sticking into the side of his neck. My stomach began to turn just from the sight of this awkward demonstration. His hands were trembling as he slowly pushed the plunger in. The cloudy substance from the needle eased into the veins of his neck. He took the needle from his flesh. Uncle Rob had just injected himself with two bags of heroin, heroin that the diamond in the raw crew had provided him. Most of the veins in his arms and legs were already collapsed from injecting for so many years. There were only two places remaining on his body where he could continue injecting the illegal opiate. One of those places was his neck. The other was a place far too nauseating to name. This was the life of a man held captive by the disease of drug addiction, teetering on the brink of self-annihilation. Uncle Rob had been entrenched in this dreadful underworld for decades. When I needed a new product tested before it hit the streets, Uncle Rob was the man to consult. I could tell if he liked the package without asking him a single question. Just watching his face was enough. Okay, okay, he began mumbling just seconds after the stuff entered his bloodstream. Anthony, my confidant and mentor in the business, had schooled me thoroughly before he was murdered. You mix just enough quinine and bonita with the raw to give the heroin a nice hefty boost. Using caution, Uncle Rob slowly began walking forward, holding the syringe close. He wobbled a bit with his first few steps, but quickly righted himself. Suddenly, Uncle Rob began his slow scratch, the itch a result of the quinine, an important ingredient in this fusion of unauthorized pharmaceutical mix. 
The scratch was his trademark. His eyes began to flicker and his head began to nod. Then his mouth opened and he began to drool. He loved it. When I saw Uncle Rob's scratch, I knew the package was good and the mix was right. Um, so that was actually an introduction to the book. Um, and that was actually the first piece of writing that I did for the book. Um, I was actually sitting home one day. The first time that I said, you know what, I want to write. Because for me, writing was um, therapeutic. Because by that time, I realized that I really played a big role in damaging other people's, li- other people's lives. Um, and so it's a really dramatic uh, part of the book, very descriptive, but it really paints this picture of this 18-year-old kid uh, really afraid entering the drug business at a very young age, not really knowing what to expect, um, and really in fear. Um, I remember the first time I watched a guy inject heroin. I was, my stomach turned. I couldn't tell him that. I had to play this tough guy role, you know, uh, that I could take it. I was okay, but I really wasn't okay. Um, after a while, I got used to seeing it, but I still, under, I still remember the pain that I felt at that time. And now, even looking back, how, what a dysfunctional world, right, for an 18-year-old kid to be entering into, but not just the 18-year-old kid. We're talking about a, another grown man suffering from the disease of addiction and how powerful the, the, the disease of addiction is. So um, that individual that I actually wrote about, he's, uh, he's passed away now, um, but he suffered. He suffered from the disease of addiction, um, and he was tormented for decades uh, being a heroin addict. And so that's what I really wanted to, that was the, really the, po- the point that I really wanted to get across in that first, the first opening of that book. Uh, Myra. Uh, I want to read just a slightly lighter passage right now, okay. where it all began. Okay. Baltimore was a tough place to grow up for the tall, skinny kid from a section in the southwest part of the city called Edmondson Village. On the 26th day of the second month of the new year, Kevin Anthony Sherd kicked down the door of this unpredictable and often hard-to-interpret scene from a Hitchcock movie we call Life. The row house we lived in was no different from the others you'd find on Baltimore's landscape. I was the youngest of Brenda and Charles' four seeds, planted on the earth with the intent to flourish. I had two sisters, Karen and Wanda, and an older brother named Carl. According to Karen, being the youngest kind of meant I had more privileges than my other siblings. Both of my parents had what could be described as conservative values. We could have mirrored the fictitious clan depicted on the popular television series The Cosby Show, if not for the continued dysfunction and the lack of finances. And with that said, there was a lot of room in between for errors and oversight. Being church-going people of the Christian faith, the entire family made the regular Sunday morning pilgrimage to the chapel for God's blessings, where the priest chided the parishioners for their worldly sins. Just hours later, many of those who had listened to the scriptures and chanted hallelujah were back to their worldly sins, only to be back for the next Sunday morning mass and to be chided again. 
So for my parents, it was a constant struggle just to eat, drink, and provide shelter for us all. At the time, I didn't know what underprivileged meant, but we were the epitome of it. Even back then, I knew money was an issue for us as I watched my parents juggle the available cash, taking what was meant for Peter in order to pay Paul. Some nights, grits or pancakes were all that was on the menu. There were times when we didn't have any food at all. Those days when my stomach was growling and that hollow pit in my breadbasket yearned to be fed are still difficult to forget. Occasionally, the water in our house would be shut off due to non-payment of the bill, prompting an excursion to a nearby relative's home to get a bath. Those were some tough days for my family and me. Did you ever see the big basket of sneakers that sat near the frozen food aisle in the grocery store? Have you ever wondered who the hell would purchase those cheap, ugly things? Of all the places to buy sneakers, my mother bought mine from Super Saver Supermarket. Even as a kid... It was humiliating to sports shoes that everyone in school knew had once sat next to the frozen waffles. Um, Professor Cornell West, uh, he's an individual that I admire, a writer, a speaker, and he often says, um, the unexamined life is not worth living. And And then he follows that up with, the examined life is painful. You have to have courage. So in writing about some of the tough times that I dealt with growing up as a kid, it wasn't easy. <laughs> actually, it was very tough. Um, and actually, I remember one day writing, and tears were in my eyes. And I was actually sitting in my living room alone. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. What's going on? Because I didn't realize how much pain that I was carrying around. And then when I started writing the book, that pain started to come out. Right? And again, so writing, again, writing for me was very therapeutic. And I can actually look back and say, even the time that I wrote, finished, I, finished, I actually wrote The Body of This in uh, 2008. But um, I can actually look back and see how I, my life had changed. I became a better communicator, a better friend. Um, better businessman, a better leader, because I was able to release the pain. And when the pain came out, now I could really focus on me being a better person. So in those chapters, in that early chapter, I look at growing up in a tough circumstance, um, but I also realize how blessed I am today to be able to come through that that situation and be where I am now. Um, you want to... Uh, here's here's a story from uh, when things got real for Kevin, uh, for young Kevin, teen, teenage Kevin. The tables in the booths that encircled the dance floor were often covered in a fine white residue from all the lines of cocaine and heroin that had been laid out on it. They resembled baker's tables after rolling dough. Even a small band of the female partygoers were nodding in their expensive garb as the illegal drugs stimulated and killed their brain cells all at the same time. This place was just like the movies. And now I was there live, in the flesh. The many characters in this enchanted forest fascinated the young pups as they walked through this maze of glamour and glitter. Hollywood didn't have anything on these Baltimore hustlers. To me... 
this was better than the red carpet. To me, this was an example of what I wanted to become one day. These guys were respected and admired by everyone they came into contact with. With my imagination running wild, I couldn't help but wonder what all the conversation was about at the tables where the hustlers sat. I could envision contracts being planned as the names and addresses of rival dealers were passed over to the killers. Deals were made over who would control the projects, and the biggest hustler with the biggest gun always won the day. I was mesmerized by this haven for misbehaving. With the music blaring and the lights glimmering like the stars of a far-off galaxy, what could go wrong? I become increasingly more and more relaxed within the Pascal environment. It was starting to feel like I belonged here, but on one particular night, I learned I did not. An assassin lay in wait for his unknowing victim who was enjoying the sights and sounds. Even though there was security at the front doors, the assassin had managed to smuggle a gun in. In the midst of all the dancing to the sounds of the birth of hip-hop, a shot was heard. It was deafening as it echoed through the club. Momentarily, everyone froze in their dance steps. Then the stampede began. I could see the victim as he lay helplessly on the floor with blood pouring from his torso. The partygoers were frantically trying to escape, while the man who was taken down seemed oddly at peace now. The sight of the cadaver gave the young would-be street tycoon a bitter sample of the life as he looked on in fear. Momentarily, I was paralyzed. The male patrons were scattering just as fast as the women who were completely engulfed in terror. People were taking cover to avoid any crossfire that may erupt. In the relative darkness, everyone was frightened for their lives as they dashed for the doors. Yo! Kevin, let's get the hell out of here, my taller friend yelled out to me as we scrambled to the nearest exit. Finally, standing outside of the club and trying to get a taxi for a safer place called home, I could see a group of guys carrying the motionless body into a car, presumably headed for the hospital. The next day on the evening news, I heard about the club patron who had become a casualty of the war. I would never feel comfortable inside a club environment again for many years. Hanging out at Pascal's for the last time certainly was creating a lot of first for me. Um, there was a club in, in Park Heights called Pascal's. And when I was a kid, I was, a t- I was tall. So I was actually able to get in uh, underage at the time. And that's where I actually witnessed my first murder. It was in a club. It was in the dark music uh, blaring pretty loud, and shots rang out. Um, and at 16, I could actually remember maybe 15 years later, I still didn't like club environments. Um, and I still was startled by sounds that sounded like gunshots. Um, and this was 16 years old. Looking back, 16 years old, you're still a baby. <laughs> you might might think you're a grown man. You think that you're, you know, you're tall, but in, inside of this this head, the brain is still not even developed yet. So you're still a baby. And when I witnessed that violence, um, I can actually say it definitely had an an effect on me. And again, even to this day, I, I, the, the the noise that resembles gunshots still extremely bothers me. Right. Um, but that was a young kid trying to find his way, trying to figure things out. And he began looking at 
drug dealers in the street as individuals that he admired. Not looking at uh, politicians, doctors, lawyers, uh, not even librarians, right? As a, um, someone that he can look up to and say, you know what, when I get older, that's the person that I want to be. No, what, what I decided to do, I looked at guys that were dealing drugs and made the, the, uh, the, one of the worst decisions in my life to decide to go down that road. And I paid for that for a long time. So this uh, next section is Kevin's graduation speech, not from high school or college, but from prison. Good afternoon, ladies, gentlemen, and invited guests. On behalf of my classmates, I would like to welcome you to another Choice Program graduation. When I first decided to write this speech, I wasn't sure what topic to begin with. We all have a story to tell. Before I started the Choice Program, I realized that I might have had a few issues to deal with. By the time I completed the program, I uncovered more issues with myself than I could count, even with the help of all of your fingers. Now I realize I have many, many stories to tell. One of the main, many benefits of this program is that it forces you to take a very in-depth look at yourself. That is exactly what this program has done, amongst other things, for me and for my fellow classmates. At some point in a man's life, he <coughs> has to do some soul-searching. Gentlemen, for most of us, it's time to take the mask off. A man that truly wants to change his life is faced with some difficult challenges. One of those challenges will be for him to recognize that at some point he can become his own worst enemy. The biggest obstacle between himself and a new life is that little voice inside his head, that same little voice that may have brought him here to this institution. You know the one I'm referring to. The one that says, he's lame, or that guy's a bird, or only a sucker would learn something from this program. How about when that little voice says, I'm a real man, or this is just part of the game? Maybe that little voice is right. This is part of the game. And guess what? We've all just been played. The 15-minute telephone calls, the lonely mothers, wives, and children that we left behind, and the strip searches after a visit where we have to stand naked in front of some strange man no longer seem like an even trade. Again, it's time to take the mask off. When I make reference to taking the mask off, I am referring to the image or facade that several us feel we have to portray. Many do this to be accepted by their peers. Many others use the mask as a form of security blanket. Some of us have spent many years of your lives trying to be the best gangsters, thugs, and G's that we could be. We've lost our own identities. Some of us don't know who we are or who we'd like to become. I'd like to suggest a small experiment. For one day, try being the best you can be. Who knows? You may like yourself. Um, in 2005, I was in a federal prison in uh, New Jersey, Farrington, New Jersey. And I had about three, I had about 90 days left after a total, altogether, uh, 12 years in prison, total. And I wrote a speech. I was in a program, a reentry program. So this program was, was trying to help guys get their head together, 
get focused and get ready to return back to the community. Um, by that time, I'd seen so much pain in the streets and prison, just craziness, that my mom was pretty much on a different path. And so when I wrote that speech, just think about it. I'm in a room full of inmates. I'm in a room full of um, robbers, killers, drug dealers, uh, sexual assault, you name it. These guys had done it. And that's when I actually uh, uh, presented that speech. I wasn't sure how that, how that was going to go. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if some guy was going to be yeah, pissed off and wanted to have, some, <laughs> have a problem or whatever. But again, we talk about courage. And it takes courage to really focus on change. No change happens without courage. And so prior to my release, I wanted to do something different. Different. Now, did I actually know what that was? Absolutely not. This was a new role for me. Um, but I knew something had to be done differently. And so I actually saved that speech. Why I saved it, I have no idea. I saved that speech. When I started writing this book, I was just digging through old stuff, just looking for material, additional material. And I actually found the speech. And I was like, wow, I still had this thing from years ago. And I transposed it into the manuscript for the book. And it was very interesting to me as well because, again, I wrote that speech in 05. By the time I started writing the book, this was 08. So three years had, had gone by, and I actually looked at how I'd actually changed or started to accept change. Because that's the other part, part about uh, a change. So sometimes we know change is needed, but we won't accept it. And so by 2008, I was ready to accept change. And when I was ready to accept change, that's when I started to really understand, wow, this is going to be an interesting journey, but I'm ready for the journey. So, And this is uh, from one of the last parts of the book, uh, a letter to my daughter. You have a prepaid call from a federal correctional facility. To accept this call, press 1 now. If you do not wish to accept this call, you may hang up. This was the automated message on the other end of the prison phone as I waited patiently. This was always an anxiety-filled moment for me. As easy as it was for you to accept my call, it would have been just as easy for you to hang up. That was always a gut-wrenching moment for me, trying to communicate with the outside world. Hello? Hi, Dad? Was the way you would always answer the phone when I called. How are you doing? It had been many years since I actually talked with you in person, but just to talk to you by phone was a really big deal for me. Hi, Brooke. <coughs> How are you doing? <coughs> I'm doing fine, Dad, you answered. I have a soccer game this morning, and Mom is getting ready to drive me to the field. The playoffs start today, and we're the second seed. You had been playing soccer since you were three years old, and now, ten years later, I still hadn't been to any of your games. I had a few pictures of you playing, but that was about it. I had been incarcerated the majority of your life, which was a terrible example for a father to set for his child. That's a good seed. You guys sound like you could win it all. How many goals have you scored? Dad, I haven't scored any goals, you answered, slightly irritated. I'm a defender. Defenders don't score goals. They defend. 
I was really into sports, but I didn't know anything about soccer other than when the goal is finally scored during the game, the crowd goes insane. When I was growing up, soccer was nowhere near as popular as it is today. Oh, I'm sorry, I responded. I don't know a lot about soccer. I tried switching gears. Are are you going to continue playing when you get into high school? Do you remember us having this conversation on the phone in 2005? I remember it like it was yesterday. Actually, I remember many of our telephone calls because they were very important to me. Even though we had limited communication, I thought about you every single day. Yes, the high school that I want to go to has a sorry team, but I do want to continue playing. I said, that's good, because that way you can get a sports scholarship to help me and your mother pay for college. Yeah, I already talked to Mom about that. I think I want to go to Spelman, Atlanta, just to get out of Baltimore. Spelman, that's a really good school. I can remember you saying, I have a friend whose mother and grandmother graduated from there. I was really glad to hear that you want to go to college. A good education is always a plus for everyone. That would definitely increase your chances of having a better life, a much better life than the one I lived for so many years. Um, so that was the actual phone call that I had with my daughter from a federal, uh, from a federal prison on the telephone. And um, the, the chapter is called Letter to My Daughter. And so in 2005, I believe, when we had that phone conversation, she was uh, 14 years old. <clears throat> so I told you, I had spent a total of just about 12 years in prison. So you do the math on that, right? <laughs> That's horrible, right? So I left my kid out here in the streets with no father for basically a whole life. Um, and so we're still trying to rebuild that relationship today. And all of the responsibility is mine because I decided to, to get into the drug game. She didn't. I decided to make the streets a priority over my child. She didn't. So, again, we still, we're still working to rebuild that relationship, but th- these are the unsung heroes in the war on drugs, the kids. Um, because these are the individuals that don't have a choice in this matter. They never had a choice. They never had a choice to say, oh, I want my father to be a doctor, I want my father to be a dope dealer. They didn't have that choice. They were born into this situation. Um, and so even when we talk about reentry, oftentimes we don't take into account the full impact of that situation on the child. Um, we'll, you know, it's almost cliche-ish when you talk about the single mother. Um, because you're actually doing, it's actually a disservice to that entire situation. Because no child should be on this earth without a father in their life, especially a father that made bad choices that ended up out of their life. Because right? things happen in, in, in the world, circumstances are different. But no, 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 no child should be fatherless. And when your father's in prison, the child is fatherless. And so I felt really compelled to write this chapter. Actually, it was an apology, an apology to my child that I left in the streets without a father um, to deal drugs for my own selfish reason, to make money, nothing else, not to save the world, feed the poor, 
It was to make money. And so I decided instead of being a father that I wanted to be a drug dealer. And I'm still paying the price today trying to rebuild that relationship with a child that could easily say, you know what, I don't want to have nothing to do with you, right? I don't even know you. You spent, you know, at 14, I only, I was, you were only in the streets roughly for two years. That's a long time, right? You're talking 80% of your life, or 85% of your life, not knowing one of the most important people in your life, which should be your father. So I, I felt compelled to write that chapter, um, and again, it was like an apology. Um, we got a little bit more time left, but I, I just want to talk about a couple of things. One is that, um, so we often talk about reentry. Um, what, what does that mean? What does reentry mean? What does it mean to reenter society? Um, and it's, it's, it's really a complicated situation. Everything from you know, job training uh, to real simple things like getting a license, getting a social security card, right? Um, interview skills. And people always ask, often ask me, so how did you get to that point? Like, when did things change? And it was never, I never woke up one morning and said, wow, enough is enough. Like, it just doesn't happen that way because it's a process to get you into that situation. No child is born on this earth saying, hey, I want to be a drug dealer. I can't wait. It's a process, right? In my situation, it was a process, uh, really low self-esteem, dealing with growing up a, a child of an addict, addicted parent, right? Um, and then not having good role models in my life, right? And then also bad decision-making, because at, at some point in time, you got to take responsibility for your actions. Because I know a ton of individuals that may not have, have had a, a mother in their life, may not have a, a father in their life, may have had learning disabilities, or whatever, but they still ended up in good situations. At some point, they have to be commended for making good choices. So they made good choices. So it, it also, choices is important, but um, I just want to talk, go back again and talk about the process. How do you get into that situation? How does a 16-year-old kid end up in the living room when a grown man is shooting heroin in his neck? How does that happen, right? Um, but then on the back side of that, how do you get out of that situation? So how do we get this individual? Because you, change doesn't start when you get released from prison. If, you're, if your change starts when, you when you get released from prison, it's too late. Because what were you doing for the last two, three, four, five years, 10 years, 15 years in some situations? So change doesn't start when you get released. It has to start while you're in. It has to start with the understanding that education can take me to that next level. Um, and so <clears throat> I just I saw a lot of ugliness. I saw a lot of bad things in, in prison. Two things. I, I remember these two instances. Two instances. I was actually in the federal building, federal courthouse being sentenced the day that the uh, D.C. sniper was arrested. The, uh, they used to use the D.C. sniper or the Beltway shooter, different names. 
the young kid, Muhammad, and, and the, Muhammad and the, uh, can't remember the other kid's name. Yeah, Melville, right. And so I was in the uh, federal court lockup when they brought these guys in. So I remember hearing the, the rumor, hey, they just arrested these guys, a lot of chatter about it. And even myself, I was curious myself, because in the news it was these dangerous terrorists, these guys, they were killing people. They did some heinous stuff, really, really terrible stuff. Killed a lot of innocent people. So I was curious as to myself as to what these guys look like. And when you're in the world of, of prison and, and crime, and I mean, you don't often get intimidated easily by what you see. Like by, by then, you're pretty numb to the situation. Um, it doesn't say you're this tough guy or whatever. You're just numb. Um, but I remember being on the lockup when they first brought the little the kid in, Malvo. So I heard the, the chatter, and I walked up to the, the prison bars, and I looked down the hall, and the kid was coming in. And he was encircled by maybe 10 U.S. Marshals, all 250 pounds with bulletproof vests on. These guys were like 6'6". Six, six. This kid was probably 5'1 at best. And if he weighed 100 pounds, I'd be surprised. And so he was so small that the jumpsuit didn't fit him, right? Almost like out of kind of cartoonish, uh, out of a movie. And I remember him coming down the hall towards me. And the first thing I said to myself was, wow, he's a baby. So all this, the news... Uh, reports that we heard about these dangerous terrorists, murder, killed so many people. This kid was a baby, right? And I remember by then I knew that he was 16 years old. I remember hearing about that. Um, And I only saw this kid probably for a good 30 seconds. So in that 30 seconds, all these things just went through my head. He's small, he's a kid, he looks like a baby. He could have been in any middle school in, the, in Baltimore, and he would have fit right in. And then that quick, a couple things went through my head. I said, wow, I remember when I was 16, when I decided to get into the drug game. But the other couple of things that went through my mind was, this kid will never walk to 7-Eleven again in his life. He will never wake up in the middle of the night to get up sandwich out of the refrigerator in his life like life as he may have known it was over but then I realized like wow that day I had just been sentenced and I also realized wow you have an opportunity you you don't have life what are you going to do with it so when people ask me, like, Kevin, when did this change happen? When did this? It was a process because that was the first instance that I remember. And then I remember just not liking the prison cell. <laughs> There's something just not likable <laughs> about, a, about a concrete slab with two-inch mattress. That's just not cool, right? Um, <laughs> But the other, the other thing is uh, 
so I, I, I decided when I got in the, in the federal prison that I would get a job in the library. And so because I, <clears throat> I knew that I had, the education would be the thing to get me where I wanted to go, right? That would be the thing that helped me. So I started going to college in prison. Um, but I actually took a job in a, in, a, in a library in prison. And it paid like... <laughs> It was like $9 a month, like something like that. <laughs> but I love the job. I love this job, right? And this might sound a little crazy. But I, I love the job because I could be around books, right? So I remember reading about the first uh, woman president of, of Israel, Golda Meir. I remember reading about uh, Begin and, and President Sadat. And the assassination when Carter was trying to forge the peace accords. Um, I remember reading about Fidel Castro in Cuba. Um, and when I would read these books, I would literally place myself in these situations. So I would pl- place myself on a Cuban island smoking a cigar <laughs> on the beach <laughs> with Fidel Castro. <laughs> but Reading and, and books would be, my, that was my imagination. That was my way of taking me out of the prison. So there were, there were times where I, there were times where I felt like I wasn't in prison because I was so buried into these books. But while in the prison, working in the prison library, I also, uh, I, uh, I took a second job in the, in the education building as a, a tutor. So I, I started tutoring guys that were working in the GED program we're um, not working in the GED program, but part of the GED program. And this was the first time I ever met grown men that couldn't read, right? So I was like, wow, like you hear about these things. And now I met a grown man that couldn't read. And I was like, wow, this is crazy to me. Like, and these were like the leaders of gangs. So the leader of the gang couldn't read. So there are some like psychopaths in prison, so you can't push them too hard. You don't want to say too many jokes because you might hurt their feelings, right? But I couldn't, I just couldn't help this joke. So I said, so you're the leader of the gang? He said, yeah, I'm the, I'm the leader of the, the Crips, Bloods, Mafia, Library, Pratt Street. Like long name, right? I was like, wow, you're the leader. And I said, well, when are you going to take like reading serious? Because that's something you might need to be a leader, right? And he said, yeah, I'm good. I'm all right. I said, wow, okay. So if the police is chasing you and he's got your whole, your whole gang is behind you and you, all you guys are running from the cops and you get to these two signs. <laughs> One sign says police station. <laughs> One says the Bahamas. <laughs> he was he was pretty he was, he was pretty upset by the time <laughs> by the time I got this joke out he was a little he didn't like that very much <laughs> but but it was it, this is real like so it just boggled my mind that there were men that couldn't read and I said. How can you be a um, 
how can you be effective in the world today? You know, because at that time you would hear these words like the information superhighway. And I was like, wow, what is this thing called the information superhighway? And where does it go? What direction does that go in? So even myself, I was trying to just keep up with new technology. And from behind a prison bar where you can only read about this stuff, right? Um, and so I, re- I remember having an education, a person that worked in education in the prison told me, they said, look, when you get released from prison, your competition is Harvard, Yale, Stanford, University of Maryland, UB, all these students that may be graduating right, or inv- advancing their lives while you're in prison, that's your competition. So when you talk about reentry, it's a hard, uh, it could be a hard pill to swallow. Um, so I met these guys that couldn't read, and it was really like interesting to me. And so I said to myself, you know what? Education is going to be the way out of this mess. Um, because one day you're going to be back in the streets, and what are you going to do? You're going to go back selling dope in West Baltimore? You're going to go back to selling poison in West Baltimore? You don't like prison now. Imagine, you don't like prison now. Imagine what life sounds like, right? Imagine what uh, 45 years sounds like. So I had some serious decisions to make. Do you really want to get out of this situation, or do you want to continue down this road that you've been going down for the last several years that has got, taken you nowhere. Um, because I'm quick to tell a kid, the money is nothing. I don't care what you make in the streets, right? It means nothing. Because at the end of the day, the, all the lives that you're damaging, including your own, including your family, including maybe your kids, including maybe your mother, your father, it means nothing. We made a lot of money in the streets. So what? Big deal. Because I, I oftentimes tell people this book is not about making a bunch of money in the streets. If that's what you think, you got to find a, you got to go find another book. You got the wrong book. This is not the hip hop boys, whatever, right? It's about the pain and the destruction that your bad choices uh, take on the world, including your family, including your kids. Um, so that just would talk about the journey. The journey was, it was never one day I woke up, wow, I'm a changed man. It just doesn't happen like that. Um, and I think fear has to set in at some point, the fear of spending the rest of your life in prison or the fear of dying in the streets. Right, and like I'm past the point where I feel like I have to put up a facade or put on this this each uh, macho ego stuff. I think I've I'm past that. Right, I've I'm lucky to be alive, so I'm just happy to be here. All the other stuff, I'm I'm fine with that. But I remember days in the street being afraid, being scared, being traumatized. But you can't show it. Because you got to put on this, the mask that I talked about in the book. You got to wear the mask. And then when, once you take off the mask, now you can really see like, who you really are, what you really are, what makes you t- tick, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses. 
um, one of the things, I, when I was in prison, I actually ran a program. It was, uh, it was part of the, the reentry program for, for the Choice Program. And I used to tell guys, it was an exercise. I used to tell guys, I need you to go up to the board. On one side of the board, I want you to write your strengths. On one, the other side of the board, I want you to write your weaknesses. And the guys, <clears throat> it was always the same answers. Like, it never failed. Weaknesses, money, women, cars. Every, it never failed. Right? <clears throat> and I used to say, well, how could a car be your weakness? Like, how can money be your weakness? How can a woman be your weakness? I said, maybe... You sure your weakness is not low self-esteem, depression, shame, like the real stuff. So when you take off the mask, now you don't have to have this, this fake facade anymore trying to be a, 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 a tough guy because tough guy got you in prison. Tough guy left your child out on the streets with no father. That's what being a tough guy got you. But it might take an even tougher guy to look in the mirror and figure out who you really are and what you really are. And those are the things that I can truly say got me over the hump and got me to that next level. Um, so I know that we wanted to do a Q&A because time is really um, running. So. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for uh, sharing everything tonight. I was, um, I'm really glad to be here and to, um, you know, hear from you. Um, my question is, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to recidivism, because it sounds like some of what you've talked about is that you learned something in prison and that you think it starts in prison and that, um, you know, some of the people you were there with need to take their masks off. And... Um, what I see is that people return to prison, and I always think, how could, you, how could you possibly want to go back there? And in fact, some people argue with me that folks do want to go back to prison and will say, uh, well, they get three squares there. So could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, that's a great question. So it's, that's a complicated like, situation because there are, two, there are two like warring factions going on in that situation. The one is the system is broken. It, it truly is broken, and, and it needs to be fixed. Um, and I'm going to just tell you this quick story, and then I'll get to the, the, the rest. Um, so when I was, I got my first job after being released from prison. I was trying to find an apartment. Make a long story short, I went to maybe seven different places, paid the deposit. I was denied at seven places. I said, wow, what's going on? I can't get a place to live. Like, what is this all about? And I had a chance. I was working in a place where you could, I could check my own credit. So I checked my credit, and I was like, wow, my credit is okay. I've been gone forever. 
these stores don't even exist no more. So I can't, right? So my credit was fine, right? Um, so the last one, I paid the 50, I said, look, enough is enough. I paid the 50 bucks, got denied, enough is enough. I'm, I need to know what's going on. I talked to the young lady at the, at the complex. She said, I can't tell you, but call this number. I said, call this number? This is top secret stuff? Said, okay, cool. I called the number, and the lady told me, um, you have a criminal background, so you can't move into these places. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm released from prison. I'm trying to get my life together. I'm trying to get back on track, and I can't even find a place to sleep. So these, these are fundamental things in life that a person must need. Food, shelter, clothing, right? Fundamental stuff. We're not talking about a Mercedes Benz and, and you know, flying to the Bahamas. We're talking about a place to live. And that's when I talk about the system is broke. Because you hear this stuff, the system is broke, the, the, the man, the government, and you hear that stuff a lot. But I can truly say the system is broke in that sense, right? Recidivism, we're talking about. The other side to that is that also God's got to make better choices, right? Because if you think you, go on, you got a rap sheet and you think you're walking up Park Heights with a 9 millimeter in your, in your pants, <laughs> you, don't, you, don't think, you don't see that as a problem, then maybe you need to go back to prison, right? And I'm quick to say there's some guys that I wouldn't want my mother to run into a dark alley in Baltimore, and, and, and I'm quick to say that, even with my background and everything I've seen and everything I witnessed. So there's there's two warring factions. There's the system needs to be, to be fixed, and then guys need to make better decisions. Um, I had this thing where if if you got a you got a background, if you not even if you had a, if you're out in the streets, you cannot call me. You can't have my cell phone number. We're not hanging out. I'm not meeting you nowhere. Choices, right? I had a criminal record. I'm on parole. Uh, I'm prohibited from being around known felons. We can't hang out. Choices. There, we got to make better choices, right? Um, it's almost like running into a forest fire. And you know this fire is blazing, and it, and it could destroy you. It could harm you. Well, the fire is blazing. So are you going to keep running into the fire, or are you going to go around the fire and try to get where you need to go? So those are the two warring fact factions. The system is broken. It needs to be fixed. Annapolis needs to address these issues, right? And the other thing is we, as men, we, men and women, but we need to make better choices. So, does that make sense? Uh, well, uh, hi, Kevin. My name's Bayless. Um, How you doing? I work with a, uh, a local charity organization called Helping Hearts uh, Charities. And uh, one of the services that we provide is working with men and women uh, to help them with the reentry process. Okay. Um, and listening to your story, it's, it's my story. Um, but what's very interesting <clears throat> is that reentry, the way we see it, uh, 
doesn't necessarily involve incarceration per se. Uh, we've met a lot of men and women who have never been incarcerated but need to re-enter society. Right, right. They have been marginalized. Right. So it's kind of like it's been flipped. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're focusing on that because it's, it's a new phenomenon. Right. Uh, needing reentry services. And when we think of reentry, one of the criteria is that you must have been incarcerated uh, or been in an institution mm -hmm. for a period of time. Mm -hmm. I get it. But in fact, it's that's been expanded. Not the case it's been expanded. At all. Yeah. Uh, but my question is why lessons of redemption? <laughs> What's the nature of that title? That, that really caught my, my attention. Mm, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, um, no, it, it, it wasn't like... Um, so, one of my... There were, just, there were a couple movies that I, I watched. I'm not a big television guy, but there were a couple movies that I watched that really grabbed me. And the Shawshank Redemption was one of them, right? And it grabbed me because <laughs> parts of it was very real. And the parts that, so I hadn't, I, uh, I was actually watching the Shawshank Redemption when the guy, you remember the scene when the guy was released from prison, the older guy, he finally got out. Brooks, yeah, and I think he was yeah. working in a grocery store, yeah. and he was struggling with his reentry, and he committed suicide, right? And I remember watching that and remembering these are that situation is so real, but there's this this is the part that like people don't see. The, what, what incarceration does to a man. Like, incarceration, it's, uh, it can be undescribable. The, the mental part of incarceration, being away from loved ones, being away from, uh, being away from, literally from society and human beings, right? So the, the effects of incarceration on one's mental health is enormous. People don't, they have no clue. You put a guy away for 20 years, you put him back in the streets, and you, for you to think that suddenly he's going to just jump right in, it, 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 just, it, just, it just doesn't happen like that. So that was, Redemption was one of them. I was watching that, the Shawshank Redemption. And then I, I tried to, throughout the book, I talk about, I may talk about a situation uh, that I was involved in, something crazy, just crazy stuff, you know what I mean? And at the end of it, I tried to explain it with a lesson of trust, respect, because trust and respect, is, that's universal. It's in, in the workplace, in the, in the family, in the relationship, also in the streets, so I, I talked about the lesson. I tried to talk about the lesson 
you know, that kind of thing. So that's what I came up with, lessons of redemption. Um, does that make sense? Okay. Okay, we're going to take two more questions because Kevin has books in the back oh, of the wow. sale. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. Oh, man. <laughs> it's going to be a book signing. Um, thank you very much for this excellent, Hi. excellent talk. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about what <coughs> our community could have done to have helped you make better choices at the beginning when you were 16. Right. And so that, you know, so that because every day folks are making these choices and still today the same choices are being made. So again, what could our city, our community do to help folks in this situation make better choices? That's a great question. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of mentoring because at 15 or 16 years old, this is what a 15 or 16 year old kid, this is what their mind like, sees from the inside. They're just searching. They're searching. They're looking. They're looking for what to get into, what to, what to do. What is this thing called life? Like, what is this? What is this? And they're just trying to figure it out. So they're just searching. They're looking for something. And as a community, we have to be careful in what they find because they could find a great thing, like a great mentoring program uh, connected to NASA is teaching them about uh, uh, aeronautics, and those things could take them to that next level. Or he could find a, a guy selling dope that don't, could care less about the kid's life, could care less about what the kid does for his future. So as a community, we, be, we have to be careful in what our kids find, because they're going to find something. If it's a great parent that's going to guide them to a, a great life and mentor them, that's great. A great father that's going to guide them to a great life, a great teacher, a great policeman, that's great. If he finds the drug dealer, that's going to be a problem, right? Or he could, he, it don't have to be the dealer, it could be the, 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 the user, right? That's, the addiction is, you know, it's still a bad thing. So as a community, we have to be careful in what these kids find. Mentoring programs, I'm, I'm a, um, I'm a, uh, big support of mentoring programs in school and after school, especially in a place like Baltimore. Because, the, so the numbers just became public a few days ago. Barbara Mikulski had a press conference about the, uh, the money she's bringing into Baltimore to, to fight the heroin epidemic. 60,000 addicts in Baltimore. That, those were the numbers. My question is this. If we have 60,000 addicts in Baltimore, where are the, kid, the, the, the kids, right? So what's going on with the children of these, of these addicts? Who's, who's their mentor? Who's their supporter? Who's helping keep them out of the streets? Who's helping to keep them straight while they need little fundamental stuff again doing their homework, right? Making sure they go to bed at night so they can wake up and, and, and get, uh, you know, get a good education, studying. Where, where's the support? For, if those numbers are true, these are 60,000 kids. So these are children of addicted parents. And so studies already show the children of addicted parents deal with low, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, some post-traumatic stress. 
from things that they saw, um, watched. So just the children of addicts, like what's going on with these kids? So I'm a big uh, uh, supporter of mentoring. I think as a community, we just have to, especially in Baltimore, where the, the, the drug use rate is so high. That's, that just can't, these kids are being affected. And not, a lot of times we'll say, oh, the, the kid's not using, so they're great. No. They have mental health issues. This, this go, the, if the, the parent is not capable of parenting, then how is the kid growing at a, at a proper rate? How are they maturing at a proper rate? So I just think the mentoring piece is big. Quick question. Okay, thank you very much. Very good presentation. Very powerful. The Baltimore uh, City Council, the mayor's office, is considering a tough curfew on individuals, uh, young individuals in two categories, below 14 years of age and between 14 and 17. In other words, just one example, during the school year, the, those under 14, unless they're uh, supervised by an adult or on something that's with an exception or two, they have to be home by around 9 o'clock right. at night. Right. Now, my question is, what do you think about this proposed curfew, and how? And in addition to that, how do you make sure that when they're home at night at nine o'clock that they're doing something constructive at home? Uh, being home with family is one thing by a certain time, but how do you s supplement that until bedtime? I, I think being what's going on in the home, you can't really mo 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 uh, monitor that because um, whatever's going on in the home, because the kid is in early, is going to be going on anyway. Um, my concern is that how do you how do you enforce that without it becoming uh, how do you enforce that without it becoming like problematic to, to the extent where it's harming the child and harming the family and creating just more issues I don't know um, I'm not an expert um, I'm just not sure about that I do understand the logic. I do understand that, look, we got to help these kids. We're just trying things out. I don't know if that's an evidence-based process, that it actually works somewhere, and they have data and statistics to show that. I'm just not sure. Um, sometimes when things get really tough, we may get desperate as a community. We want to help. We want to make a difference. We want to be effective. We may not be sure how to go down that route. We'll see how it works out. It's, it's, it was passed by city council. It's, it's being implemented shortly, from my understanding, real soon. So, yeah, I, I, we'll see what happens in September. But I think that's a great question. And this is the last question. Yes, my question is, if you came, um, if, you, if you had a chance to meet like young men, especially our young black men who have felonies on their record and they're saying that they can't find a job because of the felony, they can't go to school because of the felonies, may not be able to get an apartment like yourself when you first came out, what would be your message to them? Because, you know, my church has an outreach ministry to ex-offenders and that's what many of them say, you know, after I get my high school diploma through your church, how, what is next? So they automatically go back to the streets because they like, I need some money. I'm a father. You know, I need some money for my kids. 
baby mama drama. Right. You know, so you know, it's like a, it's like when you when you when you go back to understanding that the prison is a cycle, and that's what they want you to be. Because I forgot the movie that I watched down at real down at real news. They're talking about um, you probably saw it. You probably saw it if I said it. You probably said yeah. But um, we're talking about the pipeline, the prison pipeline. Prison pipeline. Yeah, the prison pipeline and like dope and her and how much you get per, you know, depending on if you were locked up on a different charge or something. I mean, depending if you was. So, so let me ask the first answer, the first part of your question, because I, I get where you're coming from, because I've actually been there myself, right? Um, and I use this example. A man has been released from prison with a criminal record, living in a, uh, living in a place like Baltimore. You're, you're an endangered species. Yes, you are. I mean, it's just the reality, right? You cannot rely on somebody else to save your life. You got to save your own life. You got to take your life in your hands and say, I'm going to take responsibility for this. Um, I remember a guy when I, when I, because uh, I did almost 12 years, right? Last time, seven years straight, right? And I remember God told me, he said, Kevin, so this was a guy that I was in federal prison with. I can't remember the year. Got out, came back in seven years. <clears throat> and I remember him, him telling me, Kevin, I know what's wrong with you. I said, what's wrong with me? He said, you like putting your life in other people's hands. So I was mad. <laughs> Young kid, angry. I was mad, right? Probably four years later, I remember that conversation about putting my life in other people's hands. And I even told a guy this when I was released from prison. I said, I'm not putting my life in another man's hands, right? An ex-offender is an endangered species. And that's what I talked about. We talked about the system, and we talked about um, responsibility. There's <clears throat> going to be some parts of this situation that you just can't control. But there's a whole bunch regarding this situation that you can control. And that's the part that you have to really, like, really focus on, right? Because it's easy to say, look, I could have gave up a long time. I could have laid down a long time ago. I could have gave up a long time ago. I could have quit a long time ago. And just like the gentleman that was just sitting here, um, I think he left, he said, my story is your story. This lessons of redemption, it's, this is not about me. It's about a lot of black men across this country that have made bad decisions, and now it's time to get serious about life. Because that's what the book is really about. It's really not about me. Because there's a, tons of people that can relate from growing up with an addicted family member to mental health issues to reentry to making good choices in life. It's, a, it's, it's not just about me, right? Um, that 
those men that have been released, they have to understand, look, I made bad choices. Now I am an endangered species, so now I have to make better choices. And some of those better choices might not be, um, might not make me feel so great. But that's the, the, that's, it, there is a price to pay when you make bad choices. I'm still paying some prices now. Trying to get a background check to the White House. That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so there's a price to pay for your bad choices. Again, I could have laid down and quit a long time ago. And I was exposed to some, some great men doing some great things, inspired by it. It's people in this room that I know, that I've, I've been friends with for years, and they're doing great stuff. And I look at them, and I'm, they are my motivation. You got, these guys, they got to find somebody that motivates them, find somebody that inspires them to do better. And they, they're, they're out here. You got to find them. Um, I have cards here. We, I coordinated a mentoring program for uh, Living he Foundation. He's got a great program. And uh, we're uh, mentoring. Um, so we got men, I think we got to sell some books so we can keep the lights on. Let's give Kevin a warm. Yeah.